Um, some of you know who this guy is. Some of you know who he is, or you think you do. One of them is Ed Sheeran, one of them is not. One of them is not Ed Sheeran. I'm not actually sure which one is and which one isn't. Maybe Ed's on the right, I'm not sure. The other person, though, is a guy named Wes. Wes Byrne looks identical, just about, to Ed Sheeran. So Ed Sheeran, you know Ed Sheeran, is, he's, he's a famous, very popular singer right now. Wes is just like you and me, just a regular person. Uh, but he's a big, big Ed Sheeran fan, and he looks just like him. So there was a concert that he showed up to in Manchester, England, and he started causing a fire hazard because so many people wanted to take a picture with him or get his autograph. And he was just there with his sister and his nephew trying to watch the concert, and he had to be moved from his $86 seats to over $1,000 seats by security because he was causing a problem. Well, Wes, Wes knew this. He knows that people recognize him and think that he's, he's Ed Sheeran all the time. So he has a dilemma. He has to act and walk in such a way, live his life in such a way, that he represents Ed Sheeran well, because he really could destroy his reputation. If he lived or said something in a way that wouldn't be fitting with how Ed Sheeran would act, he could destroy Ed's career. So he has to live his life very carefully. He has to watch the things that he says and watch the things that he does. How much more so for us as Christians? We are to be imitators of Christ we are to look like Christ, to sound like Christ. When other people see us, they should see Jesus. They should see Jesus in the things that we're doing, the things that we're saying, and we should never do anything that would tarnish that reputation of who Jesus is. We have to be oh so careful in the way that we walk, the way that we walk in wisdom towards outsiders, those that are outside the church who are not yet believers, we have to be also careful in things that we say, that it's seasoned with grace. We may not have quite the same situation as Wes and Ed here, but we still have to be also careful. Let's look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4. I say this. I put my glasses on so I can actually see what it says. There we go. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Let's start with verse 5, and we're going to take this really in two pieces. But we need to walk wisely before this world. We need to walk wisely. Three words that we need to understand as we first come to this first part of verse 5. We need to understand walk, wisdom, and outsiders. We need to understand what do those words mean. Our walk. So first, what is our walk? It's not, it's not the way that we're moving. It's the way that we are living. It's the way that we live in front of people. It's the way that we live when nobody's watching. That's our walk, how we live our life. So that's what's to be understood when walk is said here. We see that in other places as well as Paul is talking. But it's the way that you live your life. We're to walk in wisdom. Wisdom can be understood as the quality of having experience, knowledge, and good judgment. All three of those coming together is wisdom. I think Paul has good judgment as one of the primary thoughts as he's using this word wisdom, good judgment. You can have knowledge, but not use that knowledge with wisdom. If you have wisdom, you're using that knowledge and that experience with good judgment. That's how we're to be walking. We're to be walking with good judgment, using our knowledge and our experience well in wisdom. And finally, outsiders. There's that third word that we have to understand. Outsiders 
uh, is all through the Old Testament. It's all through the New Testament. When we see that word in the Old Testament, that word is being used for anyone who is not an Israelite, anyone that's outside of that people group of Israel. They're outsiders. They were to be excluded through all kinds of different things. They were not part of the people of Israel. So they couldn't partake in certain things. They couldn't participate in certain things. That outsiders, people not part of the people of Israel, that was used to exclude people. When we come to the New Testament, though, we see outsiders being used as a designation of who they are. They're not yet a part of the church. They're not yet believers. It's not a means of separation. It's a means of just understanding who they are and where they stand and to know how to properly act in front of them. Paul gives us a good example of that idea in 1 Corinthians as he's talking about these believers in the Corinthian church, and they're speaking there in their churches, but they're using the gifts of speaking in tongues and prophecy. And Paul is saying that when you're using those gifts, you got to be oh so careful that you use those wisely, you use them properly, because there may be outsiders that are coming into your service, and they have no idea what's going on. If there's not somebody there to interpret, there's not somebody there to explain, all these things that you're hoping to use for good are actually backfiring. And they're pushing people away because you're not using that gift with wisdom, not understanding who it is that's in your midst. So you've got to be oh so careful about how you are walking uh, in wisdom towards those who are outside the church. So we're going to paraphrase that first phrase. Your daily life is to be lived out with good judgment toward those who are not yet believers and a part of the church. So what does that actually look like then as we live out our daily lives? What does that actually look like? How can we take steps to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, using good judgment in the way that we live? A couple of thoughts that we can take away. And one of the first answers that we can find for how to do that is found in, first, or in Colossians 1, 9 through 10. This is Paul. This is what he's praying for this church, along with Timothy and Epaphras with him. He's praying that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So how do you walk in wisdom towards outsiders? How do you start to do that? You do that as one that is filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. If you are doing that, walking as one filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, you're going to be walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing good fruit, showing and proving that you are his disciples, walking in a manner worthy of him, You're seeking to live a life pleasing to God, bearing fruit that demonstrates that. So often, you know, we might joke sometimes and say, well, the answer is Jesus. Well, it really is Jesus here. You're to be walking in a manner worthy of him, seeking to honor him in everything that you think you do and you say. You're to be uh, imitating Christ. And really, that's where we have to start with all of this. Your first goal ought to be to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God first and love him most. Jesus says the next part of that then is you love your neighbor as yourself. If you're going to walk in wisdom 
toward the outside world that's watching on, the only right place for you to start, to know how to walk in wisdom toward them, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Imitate him. Seek to imitate Christ. Love him first and love him most. And then you can love your neighbor as yourself. If you're not loving God first and loving him most, you won't be able to love your neighbor. Not properly. Not in the way that you should. So if you're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, very purposefully, very intentionally, you need to be spending time in God's word. You can't live your life imitating Christ if you're not spending time in his word knowing what he says to you. Now, that's going to look different for every single one of us. It looks different for me at the point of life that I'm in than it does for Brian in the point of life that he's in. It looks different for Pastor Mark and where he's at than it does for Steve Tinsley. But each of us ought to have a specific time that we are in God's word purposefully. Not sporadically, not spasmodically. That was a word we used last week. We're going to keep that going as long as we can. Purposefully. You've built that into your life. If you want to be imitating Christ, you have to know what he says. You can't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Walking in wisdom towards this outside world unless you're letting the word of God fill you. Touch your heart, touch your mind. That idea is going to show up again later as we talk about the words that we use and what's coming out of the abundance of our heart. If God's word is filling your mind and filling your heart, that's going to overflow into the way that you're living your life. If you don't get anything else out of this sermon, because some of you are going to fall asleep soon. I just, that's just how it's going to be. You know who you are. Some of you are going to fall asleep. Get this. Take this away from this sermon. Spend time purposefully, intentionally in God's word. Let his words fill you. Let his words overflow then out of you so that the world watching on doesn't see you. They see Jesus. So that's the first thing we can take away from this. Second thing is that we need to walk in wisdom towards outsiders by being oh so careful and intentional about the way that we live. That, that kind of feels and sounds like a no-brainer, but sometimes we just kind of go into things without thinking about it. We just walk into life without really paying attention and really guarding ourselves in what we say and what we do. We have to be intentional and purposeful about how we are interacting with this world because they have a a very real idea of what they think Christians are. They have views and ideas on just exactly who they think we are and who Christians are. So let's take a look at some of those. First, how do we feel about ourselves as Christians? Uh, here's one poll that I, I saw as Christians. Here's four positive characteristics that evangelical Christians have applied to themselves. 72% said Christians were loving. It's pretty good. 71 said we were compassionate. 71 said giving. And 62% or said that we are respectful. Okay, that's not bad. It'd be cool if that was in like 100, you know, like 100% and 90 some percent. Uh, we don't, it's not quite there. That's how we view ourselves. That's certainly not how the world views us. And I don't have all of these statistics to share with you. There's a lot of numbers. George Barna's done a lot of research on this for many years. Here's how the world sees us. Evangelicals, 71%, and mainline Protestants, 59%, considered themselves as compassionate. Only 15% of other religious groups and 12% of non-religious considered them, considers Christians compassionate. 
That's a pretty stark contrast between how we view ourselves versus how the world views us. This one's even worse. 60% of evangelicals considered themselves as honest. Only 7% of non-religious and 11% of other religions agreed that Christians are honest. Why is it that bad? Why is it at that point that that's how the world views us? And if you want a really raw, unfiltered view uh, of how the world views us, an idea of how they view us, go to Twitter and search Christians in the search bar. Don't let your children read over your shoulder. They're going to hear all kinds and read all kinds of words they've never read before. It's real. It's honest. That's how they actually feel about us. Why? What happened that got us to that point, that that's how we're viewed by the world? Well, three things I know have happened. The first is Jesus said this was going to happen. Jesus said the world is going to hate you. We've been looking with Pastor Mark and John, and in 15, 18 through 25, Jesus says the world's going to hate you. It hates me. It's going to hate you. The servant's no greater than the master. If they hated the master, they're hating the servant as well. So it's no wonder that the world actually does hate us. Jesus said this was going to happen. So they hate Jesus. They hate us. Second thing that's happened is the the gospel is offensive. When you really think about the gospel, the gospel is offensive because what it does is it demonstrates to people that they are sinners in need of a savior. Something is wrong with them. Something they can't fix. The gospel says you can't do anything about this in your own strength. You have this problem that is separating you from God for eternity, that is deserving of forever punishment, and you can't do a thing about it in your own strength. Jesus did that work for you. There's nothing you can do to pull yourself up by your bootstraps to get rid of your sin. You need Christ. You need his sacrifice because that's the only thing that was done that your sins might be forgiven. And that's offensive to people because that means that hard as they try, as good of a life as they try to live, it's all for nothing. There's nothing they can do on their own to earn their salvation. The whole way they've been living their life, all the way up to that point, has been for nothing eternal. Only in Christ is their salvation Only letting go of our pride and letting go of our self-sufficiency and relying entirely on the sacrifice of Christ can we find salvation. That's offensive to people. The third thing that happens, first, Jesus said this is going to happen. Second, the gospel's offensive. The third is sometimes we do dumb stuff. Sometimes we make it harder on ourselves. We say things we shouldn't say. We do things we shouldn't do. We type things we shouldn't type. And that makes it harder than as a Christian to live out that Christ-likeness that's in us, to imitate Christ, because sometimes we just make it harder on ourselves. It's hard enough as it is. We don't need to make it harder. We don't have to make this any more difficult than it already is. So we have to be careful then how we walk before people. We have to be careful to walk in wisdom. One more passage that we're going to take a look at, and then we'll move on from this idea. is 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 11, 1. This can be part of your homework. I always give homework, so this might be one of them. This is Paul talking to the Corinthian church. And what he's talking about here is not offending the conscience 
of somebody else, not purposefully offending the conscience of somebody else. So here he is talking to this, this Corinthian church, and in their day, the meat that was served in the market most often had already been served to idols as a sacrifice in some way. But what Paul is talking about here, and as you go further and you read through the rest of uh, 1 Corinthians 10, he's talking about the fact that it's just meat. This can be accepted as a gift from God. It's just meat. You can accept this as good food. For your conscience sake, he says, the meat you're buying in the market, don't ask where it's from. It's just meat. God is good. He's provided this for you. Just buy it and eat it. Don't ask where it came from for your conscience. If you know it's from the market, it offends your conscience, then don't do it. He also says then that if you're at somebody's home, an unbeliever, they invite you to their home to have dinner with them, you sit down to eat, and they say, whoa, hold on, this meat has been served to idols. First, don't ask. He says, for your conscience, don't ask where it came from. Second, if they say this was served to idols, then you don't eat it. You could eat it, because he says in the beginning of this passage, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things build up. And he's making the point that, yes, in your Christian liberty, you can do this, but not if it's going to offend the conscience of somebody else that's watching on. Especially an unbeliever watching on who says, this was served to idols. Assuming then that you're going to say, well, I can't eat that. If you say, well, I'll go ahead and eat it anyway, you've offended their conscience. Paul says, if they tell you this was served to idols, don't eat it. Not for your own conscience. You know it's just meat. This is for their conscience, not theirs. And in everything that you're doing, you're to be imitators of Christ. Imitating Paul, and we'll see in a moment more of what he's doing, but we're to imitate Christ. So he says, so whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, you do all for the glory of God. Everything that you do is for his glory. Your ultimate purpose is his ultimate good. That's what it should be. His ultimate good is your ultimate purpose. Everything you do is done to glorify God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for his glory. That might mean sometimes you don't act on your Christian liberty for the conscience and the sake of those that are watching on. For the world that is watching, for the sake of the gospel, Paul goes on at the end of this chapter, chapter 10, and he talks about how he seeks to live his life in such a way so as not to add unnecessary offense to anyone, to Jews, to Gentiles, to the church, those outside the church, constantly living his life in such a way so as not to add offense to the gospel so that he might share the gospel and, and offer salvation freely to people, just as Jesus does, without walls coming up that don't need to be there. He's seeking to imitate Christ and to make that gospel as clear and open and as possible as he can. He's wanting to first glorify God. That's his ultimate purpose is to ultimately glorify God in all things. As disciples of Christ, as disciples of Jesus, as we're imitating him, we need to be bearing good fruit. Part of bearing that good fruit is walking in wisdom towards outsiders. We're walking towards those that are watching on, and we're trying to do it in such a way that we're not unnecessarily putting up walls. We're creating opportunities to go share that gospel clearly. And Ligonier Ministries... Sums, sums this idea up pretty well. They said, the world's hatred is sometimes a sign that we're being faithful to Scripture, provided the world detests us due to the message we preach 
not because we are obnoxious. Sometimes we get in our own way. Let the gospel be offensive. If we're going to be offensive in the things we say, let it be the gospel and the truth of the gospel and the Holy Spirit's prompting that's offensive to people, not the way we say it, not the words we say or the things that we do. We have to be oh so careful in how we act and then how we speak because the things we say can either draw people to Christ or push people away. Second part of verse 5 says this, making the best use of the time. I'm going to have to make good use of time this morning too because we're going to, be, we're going to go long. Make the best use of the time. Buy back that time. Wearsby says that this is a good stewardship term. You're being a good steward of the time that you have. You recognize you only have so much time. You can't buy more. The world only has so much time. Use their time well. Time is too short to waste it arguing about things that don't matter or fighting about things that are not eternal. Use your time well. Don't waste it. Make the most of that time that you have. Uh, Friendly discussion between friends and banter back and forth is great. Good, respectful, uh, good, good, respectful um, discussion and debate is fine, but not at the expense of the gospel. There should never be a time when your views, your thoughts, your ideas are pushing people away from Christ, apart from the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel will do that on its own. But your views, your thoughts, your ideas should never unnecessarily push people away. Your, your identity should never get so wrapped up in your job, in your sports team, in your politics, in anything else, that then you fight for that identity. Because your identity is first found in Christ. That is where your identity is found. Your identity is found in him before everything else. Your work is part of who you do, or, or who you are. It's part of what you do. Your likes and your dislikes are part of who you are. We live in freedom in this country to have our own political views and opinions, and that's wonderful. But your identity is first found in Christ. But not the world. The world's identity is found in those things. They're just acting the way that they've been taught. They're being taught, and it's, all, it's everywhere. You create your own meaning. We have no purpose in our life, so we make our own purpose. We make our own meaning. We create our own value. So they're finding value in their identity in their politics, in their work, in their sports teams, in their hobbies. That's where they're finding their identity. At no time should our thoughts and opinions, outside of the truth of God's word, At no time should we be trying to tear people down, tear down their identity based on our own just personal thoughts and opinions. If anyone's identity is going to be torn apart, let the Holy Spirit do that through the gospel and the work of his word. He's a whole lot better at it than you are anyways. Let his Holy Spirit work. Let the gospel work and move in people's lives to the point where we don't have to tear down anyone's identity because the Holy Spirit does that. And he says, your identity ought to be found in me, not in the things you do, not in the things you identify with. Time is too short to get wrapped up in arguing about things that don't matter. Time is too short to fight over things that aren't eternal. We are to be finding our identity in Christ and leading others to let his Holy Spirit lead them to find their identity in Christ as well. 
So here's what I'm not saying, because I'm afraid that I could be, it sounds like I'm saying something I'm not intending to. I'm not intending to say stop having strong views and opinions. I'm not saying to cease to stand up for what is right. God's given us the ability to do that. He's given us the responsibility to stand up for what's right. And he's allowed us to live in a country where we have the freedom to live our life pretty well just as we choose without too many people telling us otherwise. We can live our lives in freedom. So don't hear me saying that you have to cease to have strong thoughts and strong opinions on things. What I am saying, though, is that every single thing that you do before others, every single thing that you say before this world needs to be filtered first through Scripture, filtered first through the working of the Holy Spirit in your heart and in your mind as you are sanctified, and each day you are looking more and more like Christ. So you can still have strong views and strong opinions, but you're walking in wisdom. You're knowing how to use good judgment then on how you're living that out before others because you're letting God's Word fill you in your heart your mind, and then that's coming out in the way that you live. Let God's word be that filter. Be a good steward of the time that you have because you only have so much. You have to walk in wisdom towards this world. Walk wisely. In the way that you walk, you either draw people to Christ or you push people away from Christ. Walk wisely before this world. We also need to speak wisely before this world. Verse 6 is this, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The older I get, the more I've come to realize that I have this great loathing of being hit by a car on my bike, believe it or not. I really detest the idea. And that's happened several times. I have been hit by cars several times on my bike. So I get a little bit twitchy and a little bit nervous at times when somebody's driving beside me or ahead of me or whatever, and they do something erratic, make me have to respond quicker than I probably should, uh, make me have to, I don't know, go up on the sidewalk when I haven't, didn't need to, or just being rude or whatever to me. You can understand I might get a little bit twitchy and a little bit nervous when that happens. And a younger me might have responded in a way that I might have yelled something at him, I might have gestured, never anything explicit, anything like that, but I would have been angry to the point where you knew I was upset. You would have known that I was not happy with the situation that, that just went on. But I came to realize as I was working for CEF, and as I was then doing more church work here, and then as I was thinking through my involvement with the cycling community, a lot of people know me. A lot of people know me as a Christian. And some of those guys on the cycling team know I'm a Christian and even know I'm a pastor. So the things I say and the things I do have a huge impact on those people. Even if the person that just about took me out and sent me to Jesus doesn't know me and I don't know them, somebody else watching on just might know who I am. Or me reacting and saying something in that way maybe could turn that person away from wanting to follow Christ. Maybe I find, somehow they find out, yes, this person was a Christian. Oh, he's even a pastor. I could turn people away, especially think of my cycling community. I know a lot of guys all over the greater Portland area and beyond. And as a Christian, if they see me reacting in a way that is not right, 
even if I feel justified in being angry about what somebody just did, I can push people away from Christ. I can ruin my witness. I can ruin the witness of other Christians within the cycling community by the way that I speak. Have to be oh so careful. Have to use your speech graciously, seasoned with salt. That's what Paul says here in the first half of this verse. It says, all that you say must be seasoned with grace, whether you're speaking to the unbelieving world or the Christian church. Let your words be uh, spoken with grace. Your words matter. Use them in such a way that demonstrates that unmerited favor from God. He showed you unmerited favor, his amazing grace. He showed that to you. Demonstrate that then to others in the way that you speak. Demonstrate to others in the way that you talk. Of course, if you're going to speak in a way that demonstrates grace, you have to first let God's word have touched your heart and touched your mind. God's amazing grace, let that flow through you. Let that flow out of you. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you have negative and harsh things in your heart and in your mind, maybe they don't even come out all the time in your words, but they're there. You're thinking it. It's in your heart. You know it's there. It is going to come out at some point. Here's what Ephesians 4.29 says. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Corrupting talk can sound like all kinds of different things. It can be negative talking. It can be disgruntled talking. It can be uh, cursing. It can be lying. It could be just talking bad about somebody. That's corrupting talk. That has no place in the Christian If grace is first in your heart, remembering the grace that you've been shown by Christ, it's going to be so much easier to then speak with grace to the people that are around you. Not letting these things come out. Letting God's word fill your heart and fill your mind. And I said this all the time in Good News Club. When God's word fills your heart and fills uh, fills your heart, fills your mind, it comes out in your hands in the way that you live. Let that flow out of you. Let God's word be what fills you so that it's grace that is seen. But that's not always how we react. That's not always the first thing. Words of grace and truth are not always what first comes out of our mouth when we are getting ready to go to church and your child slams your hand in the car door. That didn't happen this morning. Um, It's just an idea, just a scenario. Those words are not the first things that come out of your mouth when you've hit your hand with a hammer. Uh, Words of grace and truth are not usually what first comes to our mind when we're driving in traffic and somebody cuts you off really badly and you got to slam the brakes on that everything in your back seat is now in your front seat. Words of grace and truth are not always what come to your, your mind first and come out of your mouth. Words of grace and truth are not always what come out of your heart and come out of your mouth when your boss takes that portfolio that you've worked on for weeks, gives it a five-second glance and says, do it again. You may not say it out loud. You might not say those words because you want your job and you love Jesus, but you might be thinking them. Don't let those words fill your heart and fill your mind. You have to train yourself to do this. Our flesh is always going to want to say just exactly what's on our mind. But we have to let the Holy Spirit guide us. We have to let the Holy Spirit control us. Let his words fill you. Let his words change your heart. As they change your heart, they change your mind. And they change how you react and how you respond. Speak with grace. So how about this part about seasoned with salt? 
What's Paul saying here as he's talking about being seasoned with salt? It could be seasoned with grace. Let it be sprinkled with grace in everything that you say. Um, one way that the rabbis used salt in conversation was talking about speaking with wisdom. The Gnostic teachers of the day talked about your speech, using salt in your speech as speaking in a witty way. That's definitely not how Paul is using it here. He's using it in contrast. So we got to think then, uh, what does salt do? Well, we think about how we use salt in conversation today. Um, you say, take this with a grain of salt. What does that usually mean? So take this skeptically. Not quite sure of all the details. Not all the facts are quite straight. Uh, so take this with a grain of salt. We shouldn't say that as Christians. We shouldn't be saying that. We want to be sure of what we're saying and not misleading people intentionally or unintentionally. Uh, sometimes somebody might say, well, they were really salty about that. That means, according to the Urban Dictionary, that bastion of grace and truth on the internet, it, it means that you're getting upset and angry over petty things, little things that don't matter. You say, oh, well, he's really salty about that today. That's not how Paul's using salt here at all. We've got to think about what does salt do? Salt does a whole lot of things, but three positive things that salt does. Salt gives good flavor. Salt preserves things. Salt heals. Those are three things that salt does. Maybe that's the idea that Paul has in mind here. Use your words in such, as, in such a way that it brings good flavor. It's preserving that conversation as you're in the culture, as you're speaking. It's healing. It's not tearing people down. It's building people up. It's, it's a healing uh, uh, way that you're speaking. Jesus talks about salt in Matthew 3, thir- uh, 15 through 16. He says, you're the salt of the earth. He goes on to talk about you as believers also being the light of the world. Well, what's the point of being the light of the world? We're to be a light, a city up on a hill, that people might see us. They might then see our good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So the ultimate goal is the glory of God. Well, we track that back then with being the salt of the earth. Our ultimate goal is to speak in such a way that God gets the glory. We bring flavor. We preserve the culture, the conversation. We bring healing. That's how we're to be speaking, using our words ultimately in a way that we are pointing people to Christ, ultimately pointing them to him. If not specifically in the words that we say, maybe just in the way that we've said those words, we have an opportunity to be able to point people to Christ or to drag them away from Christ. Our words are really, really important. How we use those words, how we use those words graciously. The words that we say, are they uplifting words? Are they encouraging words? Are you the kind of person that often speaks disparaging of politics, uh, of celebrities, of the people you work with, the people you go to church with, maybe your family? Do you talk disparagingly about those people? Are you often talking about the things that make you frustrated and upset? Those things shouldn't be coming out of our mouth. The way that we use our words ought to be pointing the church around us to Christ but it ought to be pointing the watching world to who God is too. Because the world is watching on to see how we're using our words. The world is watching on. They see what you're typing into Twitter. They see what you're putting on Facebook. They watch those videos on TikTok and on YouTube. They hear those rants. They know what we say. And if we're not using our words well, 
Why would they want any part of that? Why would they want to know who Christ is if that's the way we speak? If that's the way that we post something online or post that video online? They don't want any part of that. And to make all of that worse, we claim the moral high ground. And yet they see us acting in that way. That ought not to be the case as a believer. Your words are so, so powerful in the way that you use them. You either point people to Christ as we imitate him, or we point people away from Christ. We push them away. There's another thing that salt does. Salt makes you thirsty. We ought to leave people thirsty for Christ in the way that we speak, in the things that we do. We ought to leave people thirsty for Christ. Thirsty to see that hope that is within us. 1 Peter 3.15 talks about being ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. That's the last part of verse 6. It says, so that you may know how to answer each one. Our actions, our walk, our words, they're all leading up to this moment that you may give an answer to each one. What answer? An answer for the hope that is within you. Why are you the way that you are? Why do you live so differently from everyone else? Why do you speak so differently from everyone else here at the machine shop? Why do you act so much differently than everyone else in this business? You don't cheat on anything. Why are you so upright? Why are you so moral? Why do you act so differently here at school? Everybody else is watching all of this. Everybody else does this. Why don't you do it? You're to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. You should be living your life in such a way that just as Paul was looking for open doors for the word to go forward, just as Paul was seeking to then see, his, see God's word and the gospel go forward, that you're then ready to give a good, clear, simple explanation for what the gospel is. How you walk, how you talk before this world will determine whether or not you actually have an opportunity to truthfully, to honestly give an answer for the hope that is within you. Because people are going to ask you. People are going to ask you questions. And sometimes people ask you questions, and they might be asking, well, what makes you so different? And maybe they're asking just to be able to have another argument. That does happen. Somebody's going to ask you a question. They're looking for ammunition for the next argument, the next fight. That's going to happen. Some people ask you questions, and they're asking, because they're just making small talk. Well, okay, well, huh, interesting. That's what you believe, huh? They're not really looking for a solid answer. But you are going to get people who are asking very honestly, very seriously about this hope that you have. You're to be ready to share an answer for the hope that you have within you. The mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In the way that you walk, in the way that you talk, the things that you do, the things that you say, you ought to be able to then walk in that good testimony to be able to share the gospel faithfully. And if you don't have a chance to share the gospel faithfully, perhaps you're setting up that person for the next Christian they run into. They remember that interaction they had with another Christian. And then they want to know, why are Christians so different? Why do they act differently from everybody else that I know? We have to be oh so careful to walk wisely in this world before outsiders, making the most of our time, speaking with grace, speaking with truth, ready to give an answer to each one. 
two things, two things, not three things, two things. We'll take a look at here and then we'll be done. First, first thing that we have to take away this morning is how you live and how you speak before unbelievers has massive implications for their eternity. You have no idea if they will ever have a chance to speak to another Christian again. How you act and how you speak before them can either draw them to Christ, be thirsty for more of what you have as you imitate Christ, or it can push people away. Be oh so careful how you walk before this world. It has massive implications for their eternity. You're not responsible for their souls. God is the one who saves, but you have a chance to draw people to him or to push people away. Be oh so careful how you act. The second thing we have to remember is that your goal is going to determine your outcome. So what do I mean by that? I mean that if your goal is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength so that you might love your neighbor as yourself, you're going to achieve that. If you're seeking to love God first and seeking to love him most, you're then going to be able to love your neighbors properly. You won't be able to love your neighbors properly until you're getting that first part right. When you've put him in his proper place and wanting to love him first and love him most, then you can have that outcome of loving, loving your neighbors properly. Too often, that's not our goal. Too often, our goal is to win the argument or to win the discussion or to make our point. Shouldn't be our goal. We ought to interact with people in such a way that they see two things. They see that we love Christ dearly. And that because we love Christ dearly, we love people. There's two things ought to come out of how we interact with people. First, they ought to see how we live before them in such a way that we draw them to Christ. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Redeeming that time. Then let your words be said graciously, seasoned with salt, that we leave people thirsting for Christ. In all that we do, in all that we say, we need to leave them desiring Christ, not pushing him away, not us pushing them away through what we do, but wanting people to desire Christ, to know more, to find out what is that hope that you have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that your Holy Spirit works in us and works through us. Lord, sometimes we do dumb stuff. Sometimes we say dumb stuff. Sometimes we're trying our best but we go in our own strength and we don't let your spirit speak and we make a mess of things. I thank you that you go with us, you lead us, Lord, as we fall at your feet and rely on your Holy Spirit to work in us and through us. I pray that your word is heard, that you are seen, that it's unmistakably you that they see in us, Lord, as this world is watching on, that we imitate you in such a way that we leave people thirsting for you. We leave people wanting to know what is this hope that we have because of the way that we've lived before the world, because of the way that we've spoken before this world? Father, I pray that in all things, you might get the glory and we might see lives changed for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.